these headlines are from 10 years ago. New Zealand has been ranked among one of the worst countries in the world for obesity. Almost one in three New Zealand children are obese or overweight. Obesity is now as great a cause of disability and loss of life as smoking. Ten years later... Nearly a third of children in Aotearoa, New Zealand, between the ages of 2 to 14, are obese, and the number is much higher for Māori and Pacific tamariki. Junk food advertising is a big factor in New Zealand having the second highest rate of child obesity in the developed world. Results of the National Health Survey are out and there are some surprising findings. Just 46.5% of us are physically active and they say that's the lowest since the survey began in 2011. Yeah, at least that's, an, and also the one in three adults you know, classified as obese, these are really worrying and it's something that we're fighting every single day. We're dealing with this. A report on the country's obesity woes reveals a bleak future. Researchers who have compiled Healthy Auckland Together estimate that 2 million New Zealanders will be obese by 2030. Also revealing that obesity rates have tripled in a single generation, meaning more than a third of people in the city are obese today compared to just 10% in the late 70s. Experts say the key is to stop it early on. Once obesity is established, it's very hard to reverse or even modify. So prevention is really the holy grail. We do understand that there's no magic bullet here um, and that some, this type of social change is going to take a generation or more. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen and today on The Detail, fighting the obesity epidemic where it could make a difference in pregnancy, in childhood and vulnerable communities. And a study just out looking at how we can get those numbers down before a baby is even born. It's research that throws up a new mystery. First, we're going to speak to Professor Wayne Cutfield at the University of Auckland. He's a paediatric endocrinologist and also works at Starship Hospital. I'm particularly interested in the growth, the development of children. Right, so when you do that, obesity is one topic you focus a lot on? Yes, indeed it is, because it's a key component of a child's growth and development. So, yes, childhood obesity, particularly looking at ways in which we can prevent or modify obesity early on. Once obesity is established, it's very hard to reverse or even modify. So prevention is really the holy grail. Totally, totally. And there's new evidence in a paper report that you've just released. What's this all about? So in the study, which includes um, children and their mothers from three countries, New Zealand, the UK and Singapore, um, women were recruited prior to getting pregnant and um, half of them were put on a supplement with six extra ingredients and the other group, the control group, were just on standard supplements that women get in pregnancy. We followed these women through pregnancy and they were very comprehensively studied and then their children were born and we've been following the children up as well. What we found is that the mothers who took the supplement prior to getting pregnant and during pregnancy, we've looked now at their children and we've looked out to the age at the moment of two and we found that those who were supplemented, their children were less likely to be um, obese at two. They had a healthier weight and they also were gaining weight less rapidly. Now that just highlights that things that are done to optimise mothers' outcomes during pregnancy, yes it can be good for their pregnancy, but it can have a positive halo effect 
into childhood for their offspring. And this is a good example of that. What kind of supplements were you giving the mothers? It included a cocktail of vitamins, which included B2, B12, B6, vitamin D, zinc. Um, So it was a complex cocktail, another product called myonositol, which helps insulin work properly, um, and a probiotic. Now, the obvious question is, well, that was a complex cocktail. Which of the things did this create this positive outcome? And the answer is we... We don't know. We're trying to model and understand from what we know, and it may require later testing of the individual ingredients. But each of the ingredients has potential to have a positive outcome. So they were given this, and yeah, it made this big change. How does this build up from previous research you've done? We've been looking at preschool obesity and how we might understand and prevent or modify it. And there's some really interesting things that we know from national data that's been collected. We know that over the last seven to 10 years, there's been the slow trickle down in how common preschool obesity occurs. Now, let me just proceed that by saying that New Zealand children are some of the heaviest in the world. And if you look at OECD data, children at school age are the second heaviest in the world, just the US are worse off than we are, but, wow. but we 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 don't fare well. So while we've got this trend of improvement, um, of the slow decline, previously it was just this relentless march up. That's positive, but it's in the background of very high rates of obesity. Anyway, so this isn't just a little flick up. This has occurred over time, and it occurs across all ethnicities. It occurs across the. Um, socioeconomic divide, the affluence divide. So its improvement has been seen in those who are less wealthy and all those more wealthy. All areas of the country, whether you're rural or live in a city, these improvements have occurred. So that's really interesting. And this is the only place in the world where this has happened. There are other places in the world where a little area might be a county of a of, of in the UK or an area in Australia, or it might be in a particular ethnicity. Um, but there hasn't been a nationwide sustained change in obesity rates anywhere else. So why could that be here in New Zealand? Why might we be seeing something quite different from the rest of the world? That's the million dollar question, Tom. Yeah. Um, We've been wondering what has happened, and clearly to understand what has happened, the, the next question is, can we exploit that? In other words, if something has led to this positive change at such a wide level, can we somehow build that up or amplify it to create an even bigger effect? So what we've started looking at are changes in countrywide policy. Government policy is obviously a good place to start to see, is there an, an, a sort of almost an unintended benefit. In other words, something was implemented to choose something else and the byproduct was that there's less preschool obesity. So one of the areas we've been looking at particularly is um, smoking. We have quite high smoking rates in New Zealand. It is on the decline. Having said that, I was just looking at data half an hour ago and that a third of Māori mothers smoke in pregnancy. A third? A third, yep. So we still have high rates, and it's sort of unequally distributed across the the population. So what's happened in parallel to this reduction in obesity is that there's been this very aggressive 
anti-smoking campaign with progressive taxation and heavy taxation on tobacco. The latest excise tax hikes part of an ongoing strategy to make New Zealand smoke-free. It's seen overall smoking numbers drop by 5% in the last 11 years. And also marketing and TV marketing, and many of the audience will have seen those graphic ads on TV about smoking, the consequences of smoking. This is part of an aorta, the main artery from the heart. Smoking makes artery walls sticky and collect dangerous fatty deposits. This much was found stuck to the aorta wall of a smoker, age 32. Every cigarette is doing you damage. And that's all been about how that affects your health. But it also appears to affect the relationship with obesity. In other words, the more mothers smoke in pregnancy, the greater the risk of their child being either born small, too small, being born premature, or their child being overweight or obese at the time they start school. And there are biochemical reasons for that to occur. So we think that it could be a major contributor to this reduction in obesity, in other words, the anti-smoking campaign. And it just underpins how important that is, given the recent government discussion about reversing. A collection of doctors, nurses, youth workers and politicians gathering in front of Parliament, calling on the government to reconsider plans to repeal New Zealand's world-first smoke-free laws. We need to exploit the success and understand the why And we're in a position to do this unlike almost any other country in the world. As you have brought up, New Zealand has some of the worst obesity rates in the OECD. The most reliable OECD data says that uh, the most obese nation is the United States, then Mexico, and then New Zealand. A lot of people might be surprised at that. I mean, I was surprised when I was looking through it. But why do you think that is? What are the reasons for that? Um... I suspect if we, if we look across New Zealand, the risks of obesity are not equally shared. So we know that one in three children at the time they start school in New Zealand are overweight or obese. If we're talking about Māori, it's higher than that. And if we move to Pacifica, it's more than half, well more than half. Clearly, you know, Māori and Pacifica are kind of bolstering up that um, that risk. And, and, you know, it's an inequity that needs to be addressed, really. So it's something within these particular communities. Is it the prevalence of, say, um, more fast food places around some areas where these people might you know, live? That's a good question, Tom. And if you drive down Lincoln Road in West Auckland, um, and for those out of Auckland, you won't know what I'm referring to, but there are non-stop takeaway and eatery joints in a sort of less affluent part of Auckland where there are larger Māori and Pacific communities. So uh, clearly it's been built into those communities um, for them to access and they choose to access. So the diets are not not equivalent and the levels of activity are not necessarily equivalent either and that relates to a whole bunch of things including greenfield space to be able to get out and play you know, generations ago, children free-ranged and they could. there were lots of places for them to play. That's much more difficult. Uh, roads are busier um, and, and there are fewer places in which they can do that. And of course, now they've, we've got um, electronic devices. So the whole introduction of, of electronic um, media, the internet and all of the other social apps and platforms take people away from 
their activity. So our risk of becoming overweight or obese is kind of a simple equation, really. It's, it's a balancing act between the amount of energy going in, which is what we eat, and the amount of energy going out, which relates to activity. It can be sport or any other kind of activity. And it's getting that balance right. And our diets have changed. We do eat more, and we eat more refined food with more fat, more sugar, more salt, none of those are things are necessarily good for us, and we're exercising less, so we've kind of we've changed the balance. And for some of these communities, it does put them at greater risk. And if you think about Pacifica, for example, is that the Pacifica people migrated a very long time ago to reach New Zealand, and it was an arduous journey, and during that journey, many didn't survive. And so it required a certain sort of genetic makeup to be able to survive all of that hardship. So our Pacific communities, their genetics are designed to cope with famine and hardship. And we don't have a whole lot of famine anymore, which makes it more challenging and tougher for them. With this problem, what could we do to change it? Fixing the issue when it once it's established is much, much more difficult than to say, What can we do that begins early that tries to protect children? Because we know that an an obese child will become an obese teenager and the obese teenager will become an obese adult. We call that tracking, tracking across time. So the earlier you can intervene, you prevent this sort of amplifying effect of more and more and more weight that accrues over time. One of the common questions I'm asked is, what is the quick fix that I can take or swallow That means I can live badly, I can eat whatever I like, I don't need to exercise, but I can pop some sort of supplement or pill or whatever, and it just reverses that. Do people actually ask you that? (laughs) Of course, (laughs) often. What can I take that will fix everything? And the the reality of it is that anything like this, supplements or any other intervention, only works in combination with a healthier lifestyle. In other words, better eating and more activity. A bad diet and inactivity will run rampant over any useful treatment. We talked earlier about the Pacific community's high obesity rates. I'm Riz Firestone, I'm Associate Professor at uh, Massey University at the Research Centre for Hawaii and Health. Riz works with Pacific families and communities to reduce diseases like obesity and diabetes. The latest stats from the New Zealand Health Survey show nearly 28% of Pacifica children are classified as obese. In Pacifica adults, that number soars to 67%. I ask Riz how she feels about these numbers. This has been a long-term epidemic um, impacting on Pacific communities. Uh, This is something that's been happening for decades and... Clearly, the the way that we're going about uh, preventing obesity uh, among Pacific children and children in general is is not working. When I cast my mind back over the research over many years, you know, this has been described as a wicked problem. There are lots of different factors and players and layers upon layers and systems that all need to interact. Um, to be able to address this obesity epidemic. Give me an example of, you know, why the epidemic might be bad. Is it because, you know, the prevalence of fast food joints around the areas where people live? Is it because the diets have changed? Why? 
yeah, I'm not sure how old you are, Tom, but, you know, um, I'm in my late 40s and over time I've seen society change. And so we've moved from, you know, the times where your television would finish at 10 o'clock, you know, shops weren't open at in the weekends, but now we're living in a 24-7 society. I love this definition from Boyd Swinburne, uh, he's a professor at Auckland University, and he said obesity is a normal response to an abnormal environment. So what we're living in at the moment or what our children are living in at the moment are exposed to something different. They're exposed to highly palatable food, cheap food that's uh, readily available. We have a lot more diversity in, in food that's available. Is there anything specific uh, that's different about the Pacific community, though, and why uh, the Pacific community might be more affected than, say, others? Well, I mean, majority of our Pacific communities do live in lower socioeconomic areas, and in those areas there are um, a lot more, I guess, food that's that's cheap, that's uh, racy, that's um, readily available, um, it's accessible is what I'm saying. Uh, and so people tend to shop in those close-knit communities rather than go out and uh, drive out to a place where you can get uh, better quality food or cheaper food. Riz's team has been working amongst several Pacific communities in the North Island to grow their skills and knowledge around health. And part of that has been the development of a weekly food box. They developed their own recipes. Uh, it was checked over by a nutritionist. Uh, for, so four meals is what they got out of that food box um, every week uh, for about eight weeks. It was food that they were familiar with, so you know, had a Pacific flavours, food that they would typically buy, so we're not going out of our way to buy expensive food that they're not familiar with. And these food boxes, we, on a weekly basis, cost anywhere between 103 to $117 and would feed up to a family of six to eight, and there was still leftover. That's so good. I mean, I spent that much just for myself at the supermarket. I think that was a big game changer, and I think the, the big finding from their was that the families um, developed the recipes themselves uh, and um, it was was not expensive uh, and it, the food went a long way. The other goal of this program was to yeah, increase their knowledge in terms of healthy lifestyles. So part of that was to look at uh, what was important to our families and some of the topics that they had that we'd organised um, people to come in and, and, and do interactive workshops with our families were things such as uh, budgeting, so how do we budget so that we do have enough money to be able to do other things and pay for things. Um, sleep, sleep health was really important. Growing seeds um, to to um, develop their own vegetable patch, things like that. Is it about changing habits as well? Absolutely. And, you know, whole families together were um, looking at healthy habits. Uh, so every week when they get pick up their food box, they would also, in their food box, there would also be a healthy habit kind of, you know, knowledge um, card um, about why water is so much more better for them. Not only is it cheap and it's free, um, but it's much more healthier than buying fizzy drinks and looking at sugar sugar levels and fizzy drinks and things like that. And secondly, because Pacific families are strongly involved with their communities, you know, spiritual health or spiritual well-being has played such a major role in their lives. 
we included um, also spiritual quotes, uh, quotes from the Bible or from other religious groups such as the Baha'i writings that enabled Pacific families to sit down and think about some of these uh, spiritual habits and how that might impact on their lives, their healthy lifestyles. And it really did provide some centering of why we're doing this. These initiatives that you're running, are they making results? Are they giving you results? I just had a quick eyeball of the results, crude results, I should say, because you know we haven't, we haven't finished finalising them. But mm-hmm. our families had lost about two percent over you know eight week periods. Not a hell of a lot of time to carry out this research. You know, ideally you want to be looking at um, you know a long period of time. Uh, from another study, we um, when we looked at again working with families, but from a community centred approach. Um, they had lost up to about 6% of their body weight over a six-month period, so over a longer period of time. So I think this approach and working with families and looking at diet and the way that we go about doing it is important. I can say you know, that it has short-term benefits that way. Did you have a particular target? Like, Did you want families to lose a percentage of their body weight, or was it? Yeah. Without being unrealistic, um, we wanted them to be able to set their own family goals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But... We also wanted to keep it real and say, okay, what is the main thing here that we really want to look at? It's, it is really about accessing healthy food uh, because we know that the cost of living is so high at the moment. So that that was really important, but also giving them the skills and the knowledge to be able to exercise that without thinking about the financial burden of, you know, these boxes only costing a, you know, $103 to $117 a week. We do understand that there's no magic bullet here. And this type of social change is going to take a generation or more. Riz and her team are finalising the research and plan to present it in Lower Hutt next month. That's it for today. The detail is funded through NZ On Air and RNZ. This episode was engineered by William Saunders. It was produced by Alexia Russell and Davina Zimmer. Thanks to Wayne Cutfield and Riz Firestone. I'm Tom Kitchen. Hey Corner. <laughs>